0: This morning, I'm going to be preaching on tribulations, suffering, persecution. Um, I have several preambles before I even begin my sermon. And the first preamble is that um, the great thing about God's Word is it is able to speak where I am not. So when I look around this room, I'm quite confident there are people in this room. I've had more suffering and trials than they have. And I'm also quite confident there's people in this room that I have had not not near close to what they have gone through in their life. But the glory of God's word is it speaks to both the groups. It speaks to those who are further along the path in their suffering and those who are just beginning the path. And so this morning is is kind of like a song in the night. Um, I'm not necessarily going to talk about why is there evil, why is there suffering. We're going to focus more on what suffering is doing in the life of the believer. And so it's a hopeful but somber tome, I think, for our lives in Christ Jesus. But before we can truly even dive into what it means for the believer to have suffering, we need to admit first that there are those in this room who probably are not actually believers. And so this message today holds a potential perspective that is only if they believe and follow in Christ. And so I want to go to two places for those who are not believers, but also for us who deal with believers in our own lives or unbelievers, excuse me, in our own lives and look at those verses. If you'll turn with me, please turn to Romans 8:28. I think every generation has different verses that they're culture grabs onto, even if they're not a quote-unquote Christian culture. Um, I can remember being as a young kid, the real big one for my parents was John 3.16. Almost everyone seemed to know John 3.16 and could quote it to you. I don't think people can quote John 3.16 necessarily today, but I certainly believe they can quote Romans 8.28. You hear a lot of it, I think, in lots of different ways said by lots of different people. But I want us to notice a key context in Romans 8.28 that the world leaves off. So read with me Romans 8.28. I'll be reading out of the ESV version. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. There's a key word there that we like to leave off. The world likes to say God has a purpose. God did this for a reason. There's a dangerous connection there that is left off. What is it? Can you read that verse and see what it is? And we know that God, and we know that all those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What's the key qualification there? Those who love him and those who are called. What's the inverse Then, if you are not loved and you are not called? Everything is not working for your good. Everything is not working for your betterment in this life and the life to come. I don't say that with glee. I don't say that with excitement. But it is a truth that we embrace as Christians. That for the life of the unbeliever... The things that happen in your life, the wrongs that are done to you, the wrongs that are done from one decade to the next, ultimately do not lead to betterment in your life. Ultimately do not lead to restoration in your life. They do not lead to peace in your life. They lead to destruction and despair. It's somber news for those who don't believe. We're going to continue that theme. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians. We're going to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 12. We have the greeting from Paul, and notice what he's speaking about in these 12 verses. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, and God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love for every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we boast ourselves about you and the churches of God for the steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and your afflictions that you are endearing. So Paul starts by saying it is wonderful that your faith is growing through tribulations and trials. You are an example to others. But notice how he continues after this. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to play, repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of God and the glory of his might. And when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who believe, because of our testimony to you as believed, to this end we always pray pray to you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this stark comparison here in the opening chapter of Second Thessalonians. For the believer, for the one who finds peace in the blood of Christ, you have your suffering filled and justified. But the one who does not, your suffering will continue for eternity under the weighty judgment of a righteous God. I say this at the beginning before we even get to the sermon because I call those who do not believe to repentance. I call those who proclaim faith to share this message with those that they know are dying. They're suffering is leading to righteous judgment. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. As we go through this service, if you are someone who does not know Christ, I pray earnestly that you will hear his words and heed his call to repentance as we move forward. This morning, as I've said, we're looking at suffering. And so we're going to continue the mini-series we kind of started Uh, when I preached a couple weeks ago with Romans 12, 12 being our architect overall theme, right? Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Continue to pray. That is Romans 12, 12. And we're looking at the second part of that section, which is be patient in tribulation. Hope is our foundation, and Paul continues to build on that. We're now looking at this idea of tribulation and the fact that that it is a part of a Christian experience. And so why I want to know, I ask you a question, why does you think Romans 12 says be patient in tribulation, right? Another translation says persevere. Um, I think I like the SV here just a little bit in a different way because usually when we think of patience, we think of things that we volunteered for. So you volunteered to sit through my message this morning, so you're going to be patient through it. Right? I'm not forcing you to be here whether I go five minutes or 50 minutes. You're going to be patient through it. When we go to the doctor's office and you have to wait an hour and a half, you may test your patience, but you still freely sit there because you understand that you voluntarily went there. And you think about your family. You think about any situation where patience is required. Almost all of them are a result of you agreeing to be part of the issue, the object, the person, whatever it is that you're being patient with. Even if it's a 1-800 customer number, you're the one who can hang up at any time, but you still hold on to patience when you're on that call. Which makes me ask the question of all of us, why then when we come to know faith in Christ and it says you will have trials and uh, tribulations, we don't want to be patient. We think it's unjust of God to put us in trials and afflictions. We think it's unfair. We almost feel it's, well, I didn't sign up for this. How can you ask me to be patient in my afflictions? And so it's a verse that calls to us the reminder that this is something that we are to be thinking through. We will have trials, tribulations in our lives and they will not stop until we are in complete glory with Jesus. There are certain seasons of where it is worse and lighter, but we can be certain that tribulations, afflictions, will come to the believer. And so this is one of the ways I think that as Christians, and particularly the American church, we have let the world down. We should be counterculture in our patience with affliction. Think of someone who you've seen patiently work and live joyously through suffering and the impact that it's had on your life. This is what is counterculture about the Christian faith because it calls us to understand that suffering is not merely an inconvenience. It is not something we merely bite our time through. It is a tool in the hand of our refiner, refining us to be more like Jesus for all eternity. It is not simply a moment of passing for which we grit our teeth, hold our breath, and get through. We know that God is working through that as we move forward in our life. We're gonna spend the majority of our time in two main places. So our first place we're gonna be is in Romans chapter 5. So if you please turn there. We'll begin in verse 1. And then we'll later come to Hebrews. But for now we're gonna be in Romans. Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we also have attained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit and has been given to us. For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one who would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we've now been justified by his blood, more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if we were, while we are enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. And so Paul lays out the kind of the foundational framework of what afflictions, suffering, is doing in our lives. Now, I think if I'd come to you this morning, and I said I had a story for you. There's a man who had a six-figure job, very well respected in his community, had everything at the palm of his fingertips, so to speak, in terms of life, and he decided to join a club, and as soon as he joined the club, he lost his six-figure job, he lost his respect. In fact, people literally chased him out of the town. They didn't want him as part of their society anymore. He was vilified, he was a horrible person after that. Would we think that was a good choice for this person? Now, obviously, it depends on context, right? So it's a little bit of a fake or a false question. But think about Paul's life, okay? Paul is quite qualified to speak about suffering. His life got worse from a material standpoint when he came to Christ, right? He was a Jew of Jews. He was a Pharisee, well-respected, moving in terms of power, had authority, Right? And by the time his life is over, he has almost nothing in that sense of what he used to have. And we see this is something that is being brought to our attention by somebody who is qualified to speak. So the reason I love the gospel is because Paul is much more qualified to speak on this subject than I am. And he does so joyfully in terms of what it means to suffer. And so when we read through Paul, I think sometimes we forget that this is a real, living, breathing person who had real losses when it came to following Jesus. He simply just didn't wash his hands and say, eh, it is what it is, karma, right? No, that's not the Christian perspective, right? He had real losses, right? We know in Romans 12, what does he say? Oh, that I wish I could die for what? Jerusalem, Israel, right? His people, he was torn at what the gospel had cost them and what it was costing his relationship to them. And so Paul was somebody who struggled through affliction, right? We know from his life, he had the thorn in his side, right? What did he pray? God, give me more thorns because I'm just super holy. What did Paul pray? If it be your will, please remove it, right? He wasn't someone who just simply was super holy. We, as, a, as a kid, I think sometimes we've, we have these visions of the Bible people being heroic and perfect in every way when really they were people who struggled, who bled, who had moments of darkness in their life that they had to trust in Jesus to fulfill. And we see this happening in Paul's life, right? Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with our God through the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons that you should be able to walk through suffering in your life is because you now have peace with God. You are not adrift in the sea of despair anymore. You have peace with God through Christ Jesus for all eternity. Verse 2, through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Right here again is Paul connecting that hope to what he's going to talk about here in a moment. Suffering. If you don't have hope anchored in Christ, and it's not a hope that is daily working through your life, that you're not constantly trying to think on pray on read on through his scripture right be engaging in it's going to be hard when tribulations come Gabriel is uh, in case you didn't know Gabriel's training for a triathlon here in in a couple weeks I am not running in the triathlon but if I were to try to run with him with no training how do you guys think I would do I would be probably have to be rescued in the pool part of the swimming within the first couple laps. But yet, right, Paul is kind of giving that comparison in two, in the sense of saying, through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. If we are not standing and rejoicing in that hope, when tribulations come, you're like the example of me running the triathlon with no practice it is going to be far worse of a time in that tribulation than if you are constantly trusting in Christ, praying in Christ, and being around the body and observing his word. And it's a challenge to just remind ourselves that. I think a lot of us, we tend to be individualistic. My faith is my faith. I'm going to do what I want. Careful, right? When you go to those dark moments of the soul, if you're not in the hope, you're not focusing on the hope of, the gospel, those times become much harder. But notice what he says at the beginning of three, which makes you really uncomfortable. Not only that, right? Where do you usually hear not only that? We don't normally hear that phrase, but what is that saying, not only that? What is that communicating to us as the readers? But wait, there's more, right? We, We love to hear that on the end of a... Uh, TV info commercial, right? But wait, there's more. We're going to throw in more for you. We're going to make it even better for you. Okay? So that verse should excite, or that phrase should excite you. Not only that, right? Hey, not only did you get the hope that has found in the gospel and the peace that comes from knowing God, but guess what? Continue reading with me in three. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. We rejoice in our sufferings. So not only do you get faith In grace in the Lord Christ Jesus, you get suffering. Not only that. We sound we look super excited about the fact that Paul just told us not only that, but there's more. You're getting suffering. Okay? Um, it's it's a hard place to be. Not only that, but rejoice in our suffering. There's an analogy from one of my favorite writers. There's two caterpillars, they're sitting on a limb, and Caterpillar Steve turns to caterpillar to Bob and says, you know, Bob, I just can't believe in a God that would take Carl, put him in a cocoon, liquefy him. How good can that God be to do that to Carl? What happens to caterpillars after they crystallize? Do we know? Butterflies. Now, caterpillars can be quite beautiful, but a caterpillar compared to a butterfly is not really a beauty contest at all, Right? Butterflies are these amazing creatures that fly thousands of miles all the way to Mexico. They're amazing, right? But sometimes we're like the caterpillar on the, the, the tree. We're looking around going, how can God be good when he let that happen? Right? That's ridiculous. What is God thinking? How can suffering be something I should actually rejoice in? How can it be a not only that statement, how can it be something that I should understand that is good for me. We, we're like the caterpillar. We want to stay in our content spaces, not growing into what we should actually become. And so when we read this verse, it's because we're like the caterpillar. We're thinking in a temporal setting. Is suffering only good for this life? Let me put another way to, to help you think about it as well is suffering only used to sharpen us for this life now? No. Suffering has eternal consequences. And we quickly forget that when suffering comes into our lives often. Or we think it's only now affecting us, but it has eternal consequences that carry out for all eternity. The person that you ultimately come in heaven is because of some of the things that happen here on earth. You are still you in heaven, right? When you die, you don't stand before God and another person comes and high fives you and takes your place and then you're a completely different person. That caterpillar that turned into the butterfly is still that same insect, metamorphosed, made new. We are like that in Christ. We are still who we are in this temporal time, but the things we go through make us who we are for eternity. Not only that, but rejoice in suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance. Again, we like suffering in a temporal sense, right? In other areas, just not areas that make us uncomfortable in terms of our spiritual lives or our comforts of our things and materialistics, right? If you've ever been in the military, you understand the discomfort you feel at boot camp is before the war that's maybe coming, maybe not. But if you don't go through it at that moment, you will not be ready for it when it comes at the time. As a coach, right, if I came to you and said, hey, your kid doesn't want to practice, doesn't want to really get better, and you said, well, that's okay, I don't want him to really have to push himself, right? It Wouldn't be a very smart thing to say? Right? Or if I was a coach and I said to you, you know, we're just going to come and we're going to eat pizza and donuts and we're just going to hang out and, and whatever happens, happens in terms of the playing field. You probably wouldn't bring your kid to my program. So it's really strange, I think, and it's something we have to remind ourselves because we so often get caught on the short-sightedness of life. What's going to happen tomorrow? What's going to happen today? Where am I going with my job? Where am I going with my family? Right? And not on the grand picture Of eternity with Jesus when it comes to our suffering. We get it in this temporal sense, but when it happens in our lives, we quickly forget that. Like, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this affliction to come into my life? Of all the times, this is not the best time. I need it another time. I get you got to grow me, but now it's not good for me. Can you please move it up the road or behind me? But notice that, right? Suffering produces endurance. One of our goals as the Christian life should be to endure to the end. I pray that's something you think about, that you will endure to the end in your faith. Paul is telling you one of the key things that helps you endure in this life is suffering. Endurance becomes, is produced by suffering. And endurance, look what it builds, produces Character. And character produces hope. More hope comes through what? Suffering. It's not easy. It's not an easy path that Paul is pointing to us. It's not simple. It's not a rose garden walk. It is a long, tedious Back breaking to be more like Christ's journey. Our suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. And character produces hope. One of the things that should be evident in a church is that the older people have a better character about them than the younger people because they have suffered well for the kingdom of God. That's why our church always needs. Elderly people, I will never want to be part of a church where it's hip and cool and everybody's my age or younger. That's not going to help me any according to these verses. I need people who have worked through, they've lived through things that I have yet to go through as a 35-year-old man. How do they handle when your children are teenagers and rebellious? How do you handle when your marriage is in a hard place? How do you handle when you get a diagnosis from the doctor you were not ready for? Character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured out onto our hearts through the Holy Spirit, and he has been given to us. Man, what a wonderful thing to think through. We often forget that when we walk through suffering, we are not alone In the sense of the God of the universe who has placed that suffering providentially into our lives is walking with us. He has not abandoned us and said, let's see how they handle it. I hope they make it. He walks with us through our suffering. What a glorious thing that God does for us. That he walks with us. And going back to what I was talking about there, we want to remind one another that we need to come together. We're going to look at that a little bit more in Hebrews, but not only do we have God himself walking with us, we have the church body as well joining us. With the church body joining us, we want to notice something unique about it. Turn with me to our second section, Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, look at verse 1 with me. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. The writer of Hebrews here is calling us to remember the cloud of witnesses. Now, which witnesses is he talking about here? The ones currently in this building? Yeah, more than that, right? It certainly does encompass us this morning, but it's referring to what? Those who have finished the race, who are in heaven after living a life of chasing after Christ, of having gone through affliction and pain and trials and tribulations. So we want to be careful when, when we say, well, people in heaven aren't concerned about what we're doing on earth. Well, that's, that's kind of true in a sense, right? That, um, you know, maybe grandma's not up there thinking, I hope you make my casserole right this time. Um, more like Grandma's thinking, I hope you persevere and is excited to watch you in the body of Christ progress to be more like Jesus. But it's a wonderful reminder that when it comes to suffering, we are not alone. We have many people we can point to and and make an example of. We have people in this room that we can embrace. One of the things that I I worry about as believers is we sometimes have this pride of I don't need to share my problems with you. I can handle them on my own. Yeah, careful, right? Um, You're going to end up quickly not knowing that someone has an answer to your problem and helping you through that. And when I say answer to your problem, I don't mean a quick fix. I mean a way to continue through that season of suffering and tribulations. And so we want to be open to that right and verse 12 says remind yourselves you have a great cloud of witnesses who, who ran the race who were able to set aside the weight and the sins and they ran towards Jesus right verse 2 looking to Jesus the founder and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured endured the cross despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the father One of the things that, as we looked at in Romans 5, it said, what, that we with rejoicing look forward to our suffering, right? Not only that, but I want to tell you a, a mindset story that I think is really helpful from a example of the faith. I never read Corrie ten Boom or, or knew really who she was until I met my wife and my wife had read her autobiography and, and so was really a big fan of Corrie ten Boom. And so there's a story of Cory Ten Boom when she was put in a Nazi internment camp. They put her, her and her sister in a bunk that was full of fleas. And her sister said to Cory, we need to rejoice in God that he put us in the flea bunk. Cory eventually said, I can't rejoice in the fact that God has given me fleas. Well, a couple days go by and weeks go by and it turns out, that because it was so infested with fleas, the guards would not go in there. So they were able to have open worship, open Bible reading, and open communication about their gospel. The fleas, as torturous as they certainly were, gave them a way to rejoice in what God had given them. Now, Corie Ten Boom's sister eventually died in that camp. So. Cory ten Boom is a person who has gone through much suffering, and yet she comes out rejoicing in fleas. That's a beautiful place to be. I, I truthfully don't know if I give you the place where I rejoice in fleas. That is a great place to find yourself. But that is what is going on when we think of that example, right? Run the race. There are examples for you to look through. If you're in a season of suffering and affliction, have you read Scripture... Have you found others who have suffered through greater or similar things, and have you connected with your local body? These are what the Bible is calling us to do in Romans 12, right? But it doesn't stop there. It goes and it points the picture to someone even better than Paul when it came to suffering, and that's who? Jesus, right? Jesus suffered the cross for us, right? Right? it's hard i think in this world i think that's one of the reasons we're going to truly glorify god for all eternity and jesus in that sense is because when we see who he really is we see him face to face all these stories that are hard for us to grasp in our mental state will be in the flesh in him and we will fully understand this because think about this christ existed before creation he creates creation fully knowing what's going to happen he comes, lives a life as a man, perfect and blameless, among a bunch of broken people. He suffers with those people for thirty-three years. Right? You think you had to suffer for your in-laws for thirty-three years? Imagine being perfected like Jesus and having to suffer with people. He dies a cross, right? Willingly fulfilling it, and he reigns on heaven. Now, question: Is Jesus done suffering in a sense with us? In terms of the forgiveness of our sins, that's covered, right? But is Jesus still suffering in some way with us? Did you wake up this morning and you look back at your, your last week? Did you have a perfect week of no sin? Going forward, if we come back to the next, the next Sunday, are you going to have a perfect week with no sin? God still suffers with us now in the sense of being with us as we travel through our lives to eventually be with Him in heaven. He's still there with us, right? The Spirit groans on our behalf. God still suffers through with us in that sense. He still is there as we go through the journey. So think about all the millions of people God is walking with at this very moment. And we're really upset with God because we have an inconvenience medical diagnosis that's going to last maybe a decade or more, right? Jesus went and suffered, but notice where he ends up. And this is part of that hope that we read about. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. What's the joy? The joy is to be exalted to the right hand of God and to bring his people with him, right? We're co-heirs with Jesus at the right hand of God. That's what's before us at the end of suffering. It's to be resurrected, and exalted to be with Christ in heaven. Let's continue reading. Verse 3. Consider him who endured for sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives." All right, the writer of Hebrew has to remind us because we're so quick to grumble in our affliction, in our struggles, our trials. Why are you doing this, God? why are you putting me through this, right? We have whole churches built around this whole verse and ignoring it. If you're doing what you're supposed to, your life is going to be perfect. You're going to have perfect health. You're going to have a perfect marriage. God's going to fix all your problems by Friday, right? We have whole industries in the church evangelical world built around this notion. The Rite of Hebrews is pointing to us and saying, that's not the case, Right? Christ didn't come to fix all your problems. He came that you would join him in eternity and he would discipline you as a son whom he loves. Right? He, that verse 6 is so powerful, right? The Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. As a true statement. So one of the reasons we rejoice in our tribulations is it's a sign of What? That you're in Jesus, right? That's one of the things that's be about the Christian faith. We can know with certainty that we actually are followers of Jesus. It's not a, I hope, blind faith, right, for the Christian. It's a truth that can be known. And the, one of the ways we know is when affliction comes our way. God is disciplining us. God is reforming us to be like his son. Verse 7. is for discipline that you have to endure... God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? Side note to parents, if you don't discipline your children, it's not going to go well. Verse 8, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. We have a saying in sports. You should be concerned the moment as a coach I quit talking to you right? There's some kids, you, they get to stay on the team, but you've come to the point where you realize they're not actually here to be part of the team. They're not actually buying into getting better personally. They're not willing to suffer or be pushed beyond their comfort zone. And so you simply move on to the next kid. You say, let me help you, right? That's a saying that we have in coaches because it's true, but it's even more scarier and weightier in verse eight, right? If you are left without discipline, so when you're watching MTV cribs or you're watching the lifestyle of the rich and famous, you're like, God, why don't I have all these nice wealth and riches? How come they literally can get away with whatever they please and it seems like they're rewarded more? Now be careful, right? That person is without discipline, and they're gonna be left illegitimate children when they stand before Jesus. He's not gonna recognize them as his own. He's going to cast them into what we read in first, excuse me, Second Thessalonians. Eternal punishment. So the children of God suffer because he wants to discipline them and make them more like him, right? Produce endurance and character and hope. But the ill children, he does not do so, right? He does not discipline. He punishes those wickedness, actually, in the lake of fire. Verse 9. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who discipline us, and we respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Again, piercing words by the right of Hebrews to all of us. When you complain and you're going through troubles, go read this verse and remind yourself that you're grumbling to the God of spirits who's going to make you live eternal forever. Right? Remind yourself, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in what you're going through. 10, for they discipline us for a short time and it seems best to them, but we discipline us for our good that we may share his holiness. There's a lot of things that parents discipline for that's good and sound, but there's some things that are a little unique to that family, right? Um, My parents had a rule that when we watched movies, you were absolutely silent. There was no talking. It was focusing on the TV. That's an arbitrary rule, right? Some of you are going like, that would never happen in our house. Okay? Um, and some of you are like, that's, that's the only way to watch a movie. Well, how else would you do that? The point being is that's a temporary, arbitrary rule that a father institutes on his family. Right? Verse 10, they discipline as they seem best for a short time. Right? I'm only in my parents' house for a short time. But look at what it's saying. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. In other words, he disciplines us for eternity. It's not temporary. God isn't just giving you tribulations because he's got some weird wonky house rules. It's because his tribulations and his disciplining you leads to you being a better perfect creature of regeneration in Christ. Verse 11 For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. I don't like those words. They make me uncomfortable because I like being comfortable. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. But it leads to peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who have been observing it. Is that what it says at the end there? Those who observe, those who read theological books, those who listen to the latest podcasts. What does it say? Those who have been trained, right? Well, the virgins have something similar. Persevere, right? There's this again, that uncomfortable reality that God is calling us to be trained by affliction. When you're being afflicted and it is heavy on your soul and it's keeping you up at night, rejoice. You're being trained to be more like God. You're being trained to be more like God. 12. Therefore, Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Man, it's, a, it's another great verse, right? Trust your God. Quit drooping, quit pouting. Strengthen yourself in Him, 13, and make your path straight for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Right? Then he gives us some practical ways that we are to persevere in our tribulations with one another. Because I hate to tell you, as a broken body of believers, you're going to have to suffer with me. I'm going to get under your skin. I'm going to annoy you. I'm actually going to sin against you. It's a proven fact. And I hate to tell you, but you're going to do the same to me and everyone else in this room. Right? But he gives us how we move forward in this tribulation with one another. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without no one which will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of business springs up and causes trouble and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent though he sought it with tears. Right? Sometimes suffering comes in the form of a doctor's prognosis, an unexpected medical bill, a loss of a job. It's something that's out of your control. And then sometimes suffering comes in the form of being with the people of God who sin against you, who drive you crazy, who are inconsistent, who are hypocritical, who are broken and becoming more like Christ themselves. Paul calls us to remember this, right? That suffering and tribulation isn't always grand-themed events in our lives. It's sometimes the day in, day out of living with broken people. As we look at this, I want to close with two places. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 6, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. You ever say the devil prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour? Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kind of sufferings are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Right, so you're not alone. Don't forget that. But look at number verse 10, the and there that connects it. And after you have suffered for a little while... It's funny when a child suffers for something silly, and we're like, if you just relax like two seconds, we'll fix it, right? But we're like that little child in the scheme of eternity. When you're standing 10,000 years into the presence of Jesus, you're gonna look back on that moment where you thought, this will never be any worse, this will never end, I will never get out of this, where is my God? And you're gonna remember, you had suffered for a little while. The grace of God of all, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. If you do not have this passage memorized, I highly recommend you memorize it. If you don't have it marked out with a tab or something, please do so. This is a great few verses to remind us of suffering in the body. You are not alone. Everywhere around the world, people are suffering for Jesus in little ways, and big ways. And not only that, but Christ himself will restore, confirm, and strengthen, and establish you. To end, turn with me to Revelation 7, 9, or excuse me, chapter 7. We're going to read verses 9 through 17. And I'm going to ask you to please stand for the reading of this because this is what we will be doing in eternity when our suffering has ended and we are before our Christ and King all together as one body. After this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from all the nations and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen, blessings and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and Honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said, These are the ones who com- ca- came coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed the robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb.